Well, hello everyone, how are you doing? It's so good to see all of you. It is a Good Friday. And you know, Good Friday is a, is a, is a somber uh, reality in the sense that we're thinking about the anguish and the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But it's also a celebration in that we are meditating upon the victory that Jesus accomplished through his work on the cross. We've been going through the seven words from the cross, seven statements that Christ made uh, as he hung from the cross. And what I would argue is that each statement, um, there's a paradox involved in it, because each statement brings with it a significant death blow to one arena of human existence. But the outcome of these seven deaths, um, or what I call good deaths, is that when we die to the belief that we are innocent, which means that we accept that we're guilty, that puts us in the position to receive what he worked out in that first statement, forgiveness. When we when we surrender our control of our lives, uh, when we die to the lie that we are masters of our own lives, that creates the birth of grace. Because Jesus' own words to the thief on the cross was, was, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief didn't deserve to be with Jesus But Jesus responds to the cry of the one who recognizes their guilt and casts their trust upon him. It's a powerful reality. The third statement that the the death of dreams. All of us have dreams, but often our dreams are defined by our own desires, our own wants, our own hopes as we play God with our lives. And we decide that we will define for ourselves what is right and wrong. We will define for ourselves what we will do. And Mary, as she watches her son die, she, like every good parent, uh, is dying to the death of one of the most significant dreams that we have as, as human beings, which is we have dreams and visions for our kids. Often it's our dream is that they not turn out like us, <laughs> that, they, that they choose a different path than us. But, but those dreams can quickly become an idolatry, can't they? Where all of a sudden now our 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 failed attempts at being our own gods are now we apply that as we live vicariously through our children in the age of helicopter parents, which I'm not going to lie, I would comfortably be a helicopter parent. If both my kids end up on the East Coast, sorry, Dorfo, see ya. But that's me talking in the flesh of the desire to be near my kids. But surrender to Jesus, no matter how painful it is, that good death, the death of the death of dreams births what we are really desiring, which is, is the desire to be one with God. We just don't necessarily know that. And sadly, we create all kinds of heartbreak for ourselves when we place all of our hopes in the wrong kinds of dreams. I, I think that the, 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 third, the fourth um, statement when Jesus uh, cries out, my God, my God, why, uh, why have you forsaken me? It's, it is truly the death of isolation, the death of loneliness, and it becomes the birth of intimacy for Jesus takes the loneliness of human existence and the isolation that has come from sin. And he, and he takes that into himself so that we don't have to be alone. We don't have to be forsaken. David, as I said the other night, 
once wrote in one of his psalms, no one has yet to see a righteous man forsaken. But the thing that David didn't understand is there had never been a righteous man, that he had never seen a righteous man. And it wasn't until the only righteous man that came into the world, Jesus, that we actually saw that is the one who was truly forsaken. He took into himself the isolation that sin brings into our lives so that we could be restored into intimacy. The deepest desire and knowledge of the Christian life is this, that we, may, that we might know him. Not know about him, but know him. Walk intimately with him. Follow hard after him. The statement that Josh spoke on last night, I thirst. This is, this is the death, if you will, of, of suffering. In, in, and what I mean by that is a spiritual suffering that comes from that desire, that thirst. He who drinks from the water that I give him will never thirst again. And Jesus is experiencing the spiritual thirst that comes from sin, but he's also experiencing the physical anguish of actually dying, of experiencing the suffering that comes into the, hum into the human life that leads us all to the same equation, that the death rate continues to be one per person. But the spiritual death is, is a significant thing that we can't ignore. There is, there is a physical and spiritual reality to what Jesus is accomplishing here. Because there is a conquering, literally, of physical death. And there is also a conquering of spiritual death. And the birth of that, the, the, what comes out of that death, when we die to our need to be in control, when we, when we die to the lies of what God never intended us to be, what is birth in this place is a satisfaction that, that many, um, that most don't experience. It's not that we get everything we ever wanted, it's just that we realize that the thing that we need and the thing that we want actually are the same, and that is Christ himself. And that's a beautiful reality. But this statement tonight is one that is probably uh, sits at the center of atonement. And that is Jesus' words, it is finished. We're told in John 19, verse 30, this is right after he said, I thirst. The soldiers gave him sour wine. And it says, after Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now there's one more statement which we'll consider tomorrow night as we conclude our seven nights of gathering around the statements. And, and these two really need to be considered uh, in a way together because, because Luke records Jesus saying this before he died, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so this statement tonight, it is finished, is, is, is the, the death it, it is the death of death. And it is the birth of perfection or victory, completion. In Luke's gospel, we see those words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which tells us that when he says it is finished, he's not saying it's over. He's saying our attempts to justify ourselves is over. But it's actually just the beginning. And this is why it doesn't end with him just dying. It says, he doesn't say, 
I'm dying, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, which says that there, it's a word of total confidence. So if tonight's word is a word of completion, tomorrow's will be a word of confidence. Now, last words are mysterious. Uh, when you think about the meaning of a person's life, I, I, and I, I really have come to love um, uh, biography and history. I'm fascinated with why people do and say the things that they do. Uh, I, I'm an observer of, 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 of human experience, and I, that's, why I love, that's why I love reading fiction so much, because fiction is one of the, the purest forms of getting into how people think about existence and what it means to be human, and, and to be able to enter into someone's experience around suffering, around loss, around, around love, around hope, around adventure, all of those things that make up this crazy thing, this comedy, this comic tragedy we call life. Uh, but nothing is more profound than the last things that people say. I don't know if you guys have ever, I just did, the, I was researching, because I've been working on finishing my book, I was researching uh, the last words of famous people in and I, I just want to share a few of them because I think it's interesting to compare the words of Jesus, it is finished, uh, with the words of other incredibly famous people. Sometimes the words can be foolish. Matahari said before a firing squad, everything is an illusion. But he was shot dead. So you're like, I, it was kind of a joke. I mean, it's actually what he said. I think it's funny. I guess that's not funny. Maybe I just have a very dark sense of humor. Um, <laughs> you're like, that is so dark. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, nobody else is laughing with me. Um, sometimes the words are incomplete. Mark Twain's last words to his daughter, Clara, were goodbye if we meet he looked at her for a short time longer, then dropped into his sleep and died. Sometimes the words are realistic. Frank Sinatra said to his daughter, I'm losing. Sometimes they're humorous. Oscar Wilde, of course Oscar Wilde would say this, either the wallpaper goes or I do. I really want to believe that that's actually what he said as the last words. Sometimes they're angry. Sigmund Freud said, this is absurd. This is absurd. Sometimes they're heartbreaking. Chris Farley, who I believe is one of the greatest comedians of all time, cried out to the prostitute who he had spent the weekend with, please don't leave me, please don't leave me. Sometimes they're beautiful. Mother Teresa Last recorded words were, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. What do we discover from these words? I think we discover a lot about what people live for or what was causing people anxiety or the, the reality that when death comes, there is an unknown factor and even for us as believers, for those of us who are believers in this room, I shouldn't ever assume that everyone's a believer. But for those of us who are believers who have the hope 
of resurrection because none of this would matter and we wouldn't be gathering around the last words of Jesus if they were the, really the last things that he ever said because he is the living word who is perpetually speaking into his existence because we are told that death could not keep him as we celebrate on Sunday the resurrection. You know, the great French philosopher René Girard, whose work I've been obsessively consuming for the last six months, uh, and I literally cannot get enough, said that in his studies and the preparation for what was considered one of the best philosophical works on the scapegoat mechanism and how we naturally create scapegoats. He wasn't a believer when he wrote it. But as he studied the Bible as one of the great models of scapegoats, and he was considering how the Jews were the great scapegoat um, for, for Germany and many in Europe, uh, that all blame if, if these people were gone, we wouldn't have the problems we have. That, 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 that's the nature, and he realized that this goes all the way back to Genesis. The first words spoken in the garden after the, after the fall occurs when God appears to our first parents in that beautiful story. What we are told is, is this, that the woman said, or that Adam said, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. And the woman said, it wasn't me, it was the serpent who deceived me. And Satan said nothing, he just took it because he at least is honest with himself, even though he's a liar from the beginning. Um, but the fact is, is, that, is that this scapegoat mechanism is always at play. And, and Gerard came to this conclusion as he studied the scriptures and looks through history and literature and sees it at play in everything. He said the universe swarms with scapegoats. We're always looking for someone to blame for the things that are going wrong in the world. And man, if the scapegoat mechanism has not been more at play over the last two years, uh, I mean, if you don't, haven't noticed it, you're not paying attention. Because we are all looking for someone to blame. You know, when it was political, it was like we're, it's the president's fault. But the fact is, is that all of us have the tendency, and this is the great cry uh, in the world right now, especially in the West, is there is an obsession with justice, an ob obsession with equity, an obsession with making right the wrongs of the world. But here's the thing, everybody wants justice in the world, but they don't want it applied to them. Make them pay for what they've done as long as you don't look too closely at my own life. You see, one of the things that the cross is meant to do is to bring us to the place where we recognize that we're all guilty. Because if we weren't guilty, God wouldn't have needed to die. But the fact that God entered into the human predicament says that, that the entire history of human civilization is built on violence and betrayal and deceit. And here, is that my phone? It's actually kind of important. I think I'm going to take it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Why does my family call me when they know I'm preaching? Like, that's just weird. <laughs> Come on, Mom. What's going on? Seriously. <laughs> it's Good Friday. Where do you think I'm at right now? <laughs> I 
I don't even know what I was talking about. Dang it. <laughs> when I think about our deep drive for justice in the world, it breaks my heart because it moves us away from the necessity and the desperate need in our world for grace. And what I see in the words of Jesus here, it is finished. He's saying that, listen, you can't add to anything that I have done for you. That I have taken into myself the inequity in the world, past, present, and future. That I have taken into myself the wrongs that we have all endured and the wrongs that we have all propagated. One of the reasons that I was able to push into um, a, a relationship with a father that abandoned me and, and, and uh, forgive me for speaking so much about my father right after he died, um, but A, he's kind of the center of the book that I've been madly working on to finish, but he's also, he's become for me a, an illustration of what it is that that I must continue to do, not just with him, but in all my relationships, which is, is, is truly learn to forgive and truly learn to love people where they're at, to see them with the eyes of Jesus. Because let me just tell you, it was not easy to do that with my dad. But when I watched him the last day, as he came to his close, as he breathed his last, and when I held his hand and I told him I was there and he couldn't open his eyes and he couldn't speak, but he squeezed my hand and he immediately began to weep. And that, that, that sense of I was looking at this man and here is a man that was a stranger my whole life. Left us when I was one. I spent almost no time with him growing up. My mom wouldn't let me um, spend time with him because he was a drug dealer, which is, my dad says, I didn't, he, he like, I love this, he like, he, he loved, this is the perfect example of scapegoating. He says, I didn't abandon you boys. I would have gladly taken you. It was your mother. <laughs> and I said, Dad, come on, let's be reasonable here. You were, you were selling Coke and doing more than you were selling. Any, any mother's, any good mother's going to say that that probably isn't a good atmosphere for my kids. And he goes, but it would have been fun. <laughs> and it would have probably been more fun <laughs> because the stepdads weren't necessarily a, be a, better, a better option. But as he laid there in, in all this garbage, all this baggage, all this lack of relationship, I found in that moment, and, and he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a good dad. He wasn't available. He wasn't emotionally available. Uh, he wasn't mentally healthy. He was an alcoholic. And yet I looked at him and I had nothing but love for him. And I was heartbroken that I was going to lose him in a few hours. And that doesn't come naturally to the... I am not superhuman. I have been blessed. My wife says I am blessed with the ability to forgive quickly. And, I, and that is a unique temperament thing. I just, I don't hold on to grudges. But here's the thing. The reason that I can forgive quickly almost any wrong, it's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird thing. Um, 
even to the point where at times I've had people get mad at me, like, how could you be, why are you just being okay with that person after what they did? But it's because I know all the dumb, horrible things I've done because I've come close to Jesus. And Jesus is, is a flashlight. He's the light of the world. And as the light of the world, his light comes into our lives and it reveals our need for him. It also reveals the things that have kept us from him. That's the challenge, the paradox of the Christian life is it, is, is it, is it brings this painful death to the reality that I, Lord, every time I get close to you, to embrace you, to be near you, to love you more, to know you more, what I find is I also am, am finding myself even more desperately aware of my own lack of forgiveness, my own ways in which I hold on to grudges, the, the ways that I can let people down, the glitches in my own temperament. It's one of the reasons that I practice as anyone who's been a part of Dorpo for any length of time, kind of radical confession. I'm not doing it for just doing its sake. I'm doing it because I actually believe that it brings freedom. To be able to say, you guys, everything we do, even in the power of the Spirit, is still mixture because we live in a sinful world. Which means that sin will always be a part of our story which is why this word, it is finished, is so important to us. Because what it means is that Jesus has accomplished the work that he has been sent to do. It is finished does not mean it is over. It means that it has changed the world. C.S. Lewis argues that the cross is the, the moment in which time literally turned the corner. Like, it's a completely new trajectory because Jesus, we are told in Hebrews, is the once and for all sacrifice that the blood of goats and the sacrificial lambs could never actually free us of our guilt. Like, like Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, who can't get the blood stain off her hands. How do I get rid of the guilt? How do I get rid of the shame? How could I stand before a holy and perfect God and withstand that reality now we see God's holiness is revealed in something that we could never have expected. It's not his absolute otherness in his separation from sinful humanity. It's his absolute full identification with our sinful humanity. For he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, it is finished means that Jesus has shown us what glory is. Glory is found now in the humiliation of the Son, so that we could be exalted. His exaltation comes through this reality. I like here, we find these words, you know, I read a book by Reinhold Niebuhr called Death on a Friday Afternoon, which actually explores the seven words from the cross. And he says, it may be finished, but for us, it's not over yet. What it is, is a victory. Those things that separated us, we were once at enmity with God, but we are told he has torn, Jesus has torn down the middle wall of separation. That, the, that fundamental frustration that all human beings experience, it doesn't matter how genius you are, how 
It doesn't, doesn't really matter what, what walk of life you come from, where, where you sit in the socioeconomic world. The cross is the great equalizer of humanity. And the bottom line is that because of sin, nobody, not even the smartest person who ever lived, ever feels like they can actually reach their potential. There is a frustrated potential reality that comes because of sin. Jesus' victory over sin means that though we still live in a fallen world and though we still have a sinful, uh, sinful realities being played out in our own existence, A, number one, the sin has been forgiven. We don't believe that Jesus made forgiveness possible, but it only is real if you actually remember to ask for forgiveness for it. You don't need the priest. What you need is the complete work <laughs> that is done. He died for sin, we are told, once and for all, which means all sin has been forgiven. He who rejects the Son sits outside of that forgiveness, but he who is in the Son, all sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. So why do we, why do we say, forgive me, Lord? The reason I still ask God to forgive me for things that I'm already forgiven for is because there is power in confession because I can't come close to the light without being exposed that sin is still at play. But I do not live in guilt and shame in the same way that I did before I met Jesus because I know it's been addressed. It's complete. I don't have to worry that his work wasn't total. Now, this is good news for a guy that finishes everything up to 95%. <laughs> I realize it's a really, that's why my book actually is never going to be done. I, I sent a note to my publisher. I said, I, I'm working on this book. It's called The Never-Ending Story. And then I'm like, dang it, that's already been written. <laughs> well, mine's The Never-Ending Story Part 2. So never-ending, you'll never receive it. <laughs> I, I should just, I, I, I kind of feel like it would almost be the book is more likely to be released if I died right now and they were like we just have to release it un, un, incomplete that's David Foster Wallace's last book The Pale King they said it was an incomplete novel I read it I thought it felt pretty finished at the end <laughs> but I, I think that this this reality for for those of us that can't ever reach that that pinnacle that that we can't we can't seem to get the thing done. We can't seem to accomplish all that we want to accomplish. Even for those of you that can finish everything you start, you know as well as I do that the human experience is marked by limitations. And this is why this word is so good. Because think about this. If you were only forgiven for the things that you remember to ask for forgiveness for, would any one of you be able to stand before God? No, no. That's why it's also dangerous on the front end when people are coming to faith. Then we, we, we act like they need, sometimes I see Christians, they act like a person needs to, you know, they need to repent of everything they ever did wrong. Repentance isn't remembering the list of everything you ever did wrong. Repentance is just a change of a direction about who's going to be God. And the fact is, is that the most terrifying sin that is often at play most fervently in Christians' lives is the sin of self-righteousness that believes that you're okay with God because you do A, B, C, D, and E. You pray, you go to church, you give, you do all these things, but 
Do not be fooled. The goal of the Christian life is not doing good things and not doing bad things. The goal of the Christian life is knowing the good king even though we are, according to Jesus, evil. (laughs) But loved. As I like to say, a saint is nothing more than a forgiven evil person. Here's the reality with it is finished. Is that we find here the confidence of the Son transferred to us and our confidence that we are okay with God. The greatest work of the devil, I believe, in the church in this modern age is to get you in the pew and me in the pulpit or wherever you might stand to to believe that God couldn't possibly forgive you for the things that you've done. Or to believe that God doesn't really love you. Or that He does love you as long as you're doing good. But the moment you start making mistakes, God is mad. You know, he's, a, he's, an angry, he's an angry God waiting for His children to fail. But that kind of vision of the Gospel is so contrary to Scripture's great testimony. God is angry at sin. Don't get me wrong. But He's angry at sin. He hates sin actually. It says that sin brings forth wrath, but wrath is just his love violated. He hates sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. It separates us. It can't finally separate us. If we have put our faith in Jesus, it can't separate us in any kind of final way. All that has been done, that needs to be done, has been finished. But the reality is, is that when we don't confess, when we don't live in the light of this gospel, when we refuse to come to the, to the cross, when we refuse the good death, that sin that has been already forgiven can still wreak havoc in our lives. Forgiven sin can cause all kinds of problems in our lives. Because the enemy is amazing at getting us to believe the lie that it's not actually forgiven. That we're not actually okay. But you see, nothing motivates sanctification. That movement toward a holy life. The desire to put away the things that were foolish that actually hurt us and hurt others. Nothing will motivate you to do any... Fear will not motivate you to do that in any kind of final way. It is knowing on your worst day that you are loved that brings the deepest conviction to your life. For it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is a powerful reality to know that Jesus completed the work that the Father sent Him to do, which is to live the life that you and I could not live. It is the great substitution. Jesus died the death that we deserved, that today we could live the life that He lived. That is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That is what it means when Jesus says, if anyone believes in me and follows after me, obeys me, keeps my word to love, I will come into them and they into me. I will make my home within them. And how can we, how can we not look at this confidence? Think of these words. Jean-Paul Sartre, his last famous words. He's the most eloquent and obnoxious existentialist philosopher of the 20th century. And he was committed to his, his philosophy because his philosophy was a philosophy that said, if God exists, I am not free, therefore God does not exist. And he committed himself to that idea 
and he's the most poetic of all the existentialists, but you know what his last words were? I have failed. You know what? Those are the, probably the most honest things he ever spoke in his life. It's actually the acceptance of our failure that leads us to the victory. And what breaks my heart for Sartre is that he didn't see that until he took his last breath. He stayed committed to his ideology and yet he saw it for what it was. It led to no peace. It led to no hope. The freedom that he thought he had because he had killed God actually led him to a place where he felt his failure even more acutely. At least he's honest about the failure. We now are masterful at pretending we haven't failed. Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. You know, da Vinci, for all of his genius, was an inventor who was, he clearly, he was like a genius that had ADHD. Yet most of his works were incomplete. His drawings incomplete. Actually makes me feel better about being not done with my book. <laughs> but, but my book's not going to go down in history as a masterpiece. <laughs> but I, but I, I love that she, the most, one of the most brilliant men that ever has lived on the earth said, said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. But Jesus, in these words, passed away with the clearest conscience and with the fullest assurance. You know, his first word recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he said to his parents when he was found in the temple, he said, why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's work? Here's the interesting thing too about the seven words from the cross is the sixth word, it is finished, and the final word, into your hands I commit my rest, align also with the creation days. For at the end of the sixth day, God had completed his work. He had finished it, and it was very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. And there is, there's almost like, there's, there's this picture, and there is a real spiritual picture here at play, because we're told that if anyone be in Christ, the old has passed away and the new has come. This is new creation. This is the beginning of new humanity. This is God working out our salvation without any help from any of us. It doesn't get better than that. But I don't know about you. I want to just close with this idea. Because for some of you, you might find the idea that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus is actually kind of unsettling, like there's nothing left for you to discover. Or I don't like the idea that I don't add to my salvation because that basically says that I must accept that I'm impotent in my ability to do anything of eternal consequence without Jesus's presence working in and through me, without my trust in his work. And I want to just say, that's right. Like, I want you to go home tonight with the clearest conscience and the greatest rest. And the best way to do that is just to accept into the depths of your being that you suck so much more than you think you do. <laughs> and it's a real powerful thing when you come to that conclusion. 
kids, don't say that. Just say, you're so much naughtier than you think you are. And you'll actually get worse as you get in, become an adult because you become more responsible for the awareness of the things. Isn't it funny that when we were kids, we got in trouble, we got spanked, we got grounded, we got put in our room, but there's nobody to put us in our room as adults. It's not true. My wife sometimes grounds me to the room for the day. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> this is the reality. This finished work is our confidence, but it requires our surrender. I want to just close with this story. I, I had a dear friend. Um, I lost two friends in the beginning of Door of Hope uh, a year apart from one another. They were both 45. Um, one of them was a member of Door of Hope, got saved at Door of Hope. Um, and the other one was my wife's best friend's husband. And his name was Steve. And Steve was a really dear friend. Um, but he didn't become a dear friend until he was dying. And Steve grew up Catholic, and he walked away from his faith. He actually wanted to be a priest all the way up into high school, and then he went to college, kind of lost his faith, became, uh, became a, a teacher, uh, was a really beloved teacher at Chapman Elementary over in northwest Portland. Um, his wife, Mindy, and, uh, is actually the one that introduced me to my wife, Darcy. Uh, they were roommates uh, when I met Darcy. And Darcy was really close with Steve when, when Steve and Mindy first got married. But Steve was always really standoffish with me. He didn't want, he didn't want really anything to do with... Once I, once I got saved, A, I talk about what I'm excited about. So he didn't really want to talk about Jesus. Um, and so he kind of... He, he would gently... He was very smart and he was witty and had a really sharp kind of cynical wit that was could be kind of cutting and he would take little underhanded jabs at me all the time and it honestly it kind of annoyed me and I was like I'm like man I don't think Steve likes me and Darcy's like I don't think I don't think he really likes you either um <laughs> but as he got sick with cancer um the first wave you know he tried to be strong he was scared though it was clearly he was scared because he's really active he was a avid soccer player uh he he loved to surf uh, he was just a very active man. It came back. He, it went into remission, and it came back with a vengeance uh, the first year of Door of Hope. And he died. We started Door of Hope in May of 2009. Um, he died December 24th, uh, 2011. In 2011, from about September to December, something changed in my relationship with Steve. And that was that he began to feel in the depths of his beings the frustration and the incompleteness of his life as he realized that he was going to die and there was no escaping it. And let me just tell you, I have never, it actually was a horrific thing to watch a man, A, be whittled away by such an ugly disease. And cancer is awful. Anyone of you who have lost anyone to cancer know it's just, it is a ravishing illness. I mean, it can just, it can whittle a person down to nothing. And Steve was like that. I mean, he was just emaciated. He went from being this kind of strong, active man to, I mean, he looked like someone that was like starving themselves. His eyes sunken deep into his, his head. But even up to a month before he died, he still believed that he was going to figure out a way to escape this thing. 
But he started meeting with me. And, he, and, and the sicker he got, the more he was incapable of spending time with his, with his wife and his girls. Because I think for him, it just reminded of him what, it, what he was losing. And his girls at the time were only four and, they were four and eight years old. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a tragic thing because he couldn't even handle being around them. But I was the person he wanted to talk to. Because... Only one question mattered to him at the very end. And that is, what's going to happen to me when I die? Why, why, is life, why is life like this? Why is this suffering happening? I, I'm 45 years old. I should live another 45 years. I mean, for us, what we do with death is we just, it's, you know, it's the ultimate procrastination. We don't have to think about it right now. So let's just put it off. I just read this, this story about Bach, the, the famous composer, the greatest composer of all time. Do you know he lost 13 children? 13. But then I was reading that that was actually pretty common up till the beginning of the 20th century for, it was common for most families lost a kid because it just, we just didn't have the advancements in medicine that allowed people. So you had lots of kids because the odds are a couple of them aren't going to make it. We don't even, that is so outside of our, most people's way of thinking about life. What we do is we, we sensationalize violence and death in our movies so it feels unreal. And then we avoid thinking about it at all costs. That's why COVID was so depressing because all of a sudden we're confronted with people really dying around us. But I, I think that this, this, this picture I, I, I saw with Steve is like, I want to escape this thing. It was the ultimate sense of, of unfairness and incompletion. I can't be the man that I'm called to be and, uh, because I'm, my life is being taken away from me unfairly. And, and now I have to face the fact that I'm about to die and I don't know what lies on the other side of that. And I just, I want, I want you to, to tell me, Josh, what is the gospel? Tell me what, it, what, do you, what do you believe about Jesus? I grew up Catholic. I know things, but what do you believe actually is there? And I began to talk to him. And the thing that I just focused in on was just Jesus' love for him, that it is finished, Steve. Like, you don't have to try. There's nothing you have to prove anymore. Like, you're going to die. Like, there's no... There, unless God miraculously intervenes, your body is ravaged with cancer. Look at yourself in the mirror. You're not going to make it, man. You know what it's like as a pastor? And someone say, it's not right for you to say you should have you prayed for healing for him. I prayed for healing for him. But so what if God healed him? He has to die someday. So it isn't inappropriate for me to say you're going to die. Because whether God heals or not, you still get to die again. And so this reality, I'm like, this is the writing on the wall. What are you going to do? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? And I brought him to this word. I said, Jesus cried out on the cross. It is finished, Steve. And it was because of this work that he could say, into your hands I commit my spirit, Father. Steve, on December 23rd, lost his ability to speak, but before he did, 
And that, that morning I went over to his house and we talked through the gospel and he finally came to this place where he realized I can't do anything to be right with a God that I, I think is there but I don't know for sure. And I'm like, all you can do is believe. All you can do is trust. And I said, why don't you pray with me? And he said, I go, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He's like, I do. I'm like, do you believe he died for you? I'm like, I do. And I'm like, do you believe he rose from the dead? He's like, I do. I'm like, then what are you waiting for? You're going you're gonna to die any day. And I said, why don't you just pray? Jesus, make yourself known to me. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. And he said, all right. And so I led him in a prayer. And I go, wait. I go, how do you feel? And he goes, I don't know. I, I want to pray it myself. I liked it. I like this about Steve. He was like, yeah, I don't want you to tell me what to say. I'm gonna, I need to talk to God right now. And he prayed to God. And I said, I go, oh my gosh, Steve, that's so beautiful. You were praying. He goes, was I praying or was I just playing? And I said, I hope both. And he said, I was. And there was this weird peace that came over and he lost his ability to speak that afternoon. And I remember I went, I got a call from Mindy. She was in tears because the hospice um, ambulance was coming to get him to bring him to hospice, uh, which he would die literally a day later, um, two days later. And, and I went to their house and I was alone with Steve for about an hour. Mindy was so overwhelmed by them taking him away that she just had to get out of the house. So Darcy took her out of the house and I sat with Steve and I read the Bible to him and he couldn't talk anymore. And he was laying on the couch and his, his breathing was, was shallow. And if you've ever heard, you know, they call it the death rattle, but it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's an unsettling breathing thing that happens as the body begins to shut down. And I just read to him, I read to him, the Gospel of John, the close of John, and I read to him these verses, and Mindy came home, and she collapsed at Steve's head in front of Darcy and I, and began to wail in a way that I've never, I've never heard before, and it was, it was agonizing to listen to, but as she wailed, Steve's arms came up in the air, and he was trying to embrace her. It's like her cry made him like practically sit up out of near death, it was so crazy. And I helped him put his arms around her. And, and I, I go, Mindy, he's trying, to, he's trying to embrace you. And she's like, and he embraces her. And then she lifts up her head and she kind of starts to calm down. And he, he looks at her and it's the last thing he ever said. He looked at her and he smiled and he said, good night. Here's the fascinating thing. I learned this like a week after Steve died. But good night, was the words that were spoken by the early church when someone was dying. Because the finished work of Jesus created a confidence that death itself has died with Christ. And the resurrection life for us means that when we die, it is not death in any kind of final word. The completion of Christ's word means that life is not finished. His finished work means that our life is just beginning. And in him saying good night, I don't think Steve knew that. But there was such spiritual significance in that for me because there was this a simple idea that I'm going to see you again in that statement. Good night does not mean goodbye. It just means I'm going to sleep. That's the language that Paul uses when he talks to the church. Many of our brothers and sisters have already gone to sleep. 
to be with the Lord. Sleep is the language. Good night is the language used of the church because the finished work of Jesus means that life is not finished when we die. It's just beginning. And that has been this beautiful reminder that in our darkest moments, what's more terrifying than being ravaged with cancer and getting ready to face death at such a young age and having to realize I'm never going to sleep with my wife again. I'm never going to hold her in my arms. I'm never going to see my kids get married or walk them down the aisle. All of that stuff is just taken away, but it doesn't mean it's over. It means that this chapter is over, but there is hope. That hope continues beyond the grave. Jesus has finished the work, friends. Don't try to prove your faithfulness to Jesus through your good works. You work because you know you're loved and because you're working from a place of total victory. You're not trying to complete what Jesus has already done. You're working from the fact that it is complete. And therefore, what we bring to the world is not an incomplete gospel. We bring them the gospel because there's nothing to add to it, nor can we take away from it. We can't change what God has put into motion through Jesus. All we can do is proclaim it and say, He is good, He is gracious, and most importantly, He loves you. You guys, he loves you. On your worst day, he's crazy about you. He loves you. Put your faith in him. Accept that you can't add to it. Accept the incompleteness of your life and take into yourself the one who is total in himself. He is all that we need to live life victoriously, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty. It's not the promise of the removal of pain. It's none of that. No, this is the promise of Jesus, the victorious one, with us in the midst of it. He didn't remove Steve's cancer, but he did give himself to Steve in a way that Steve knew he was not alone when he died. His dad told me that he saw, looked into Steve's eyes when he passed and that he had peace. And he thanked me. His father's a deeply committed, Jesus-loving Catholic. And he was so grateful that his son found faith. And he said, I could see the peace in his eyes when he passed. We can have peace in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of these broken bodies and these broken minds. We may be incomplete, but he is our completer. He is our finisher. So let him be that in your life. Amen?